My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. What normally happens at this point is that I set the scene, then introduce the person I'm about to interview. But not on this occasion, because this time round I'm afraid it's my turn. I'm going to pour out my fishing life story. My only concern is that having no one asking the questions, it may prove difficult keeping on track. So I've made myself a list of bullet points which I'll probably have to keep glancing at as a sort of an auto cue. I suppose I might as well start at the very beginning, in Liverpool, Lancashire as it was back then. It only became Merseyside in the mid-1970s when they decided to shuffle the county boundaries about, and as far as I'm concerned, it still is a part of Lancashire. It was May 1948, and I spent the first four years of my life living in Everton, just off St Domingo Road. My parents, actually, were from totally contrasting social backgrounds, as well as from opposite ends of the city. My mother's side were quite well-to-do, and lived in a nice house at Garston with its own private air raid shelter, which I can vaguely remember playing in. During the war, she worked at either a munitions or an aircraft factory. I can't quite remember which. But women had to do that sort of thing back then, what with all the men away fighting. In contrast, my dad was a raggy-arse kid from the tough end of town, just off Scotland Road. They met in 1946, just after he'd arrived back from Special Forces duties in India and Burma. He'd started life in the King's Own Regiment, but eventually ended up as a member of General Wingate's Chindits. One of 1,100 men sent in by glider behind Japanese lines over the 5th and 6th of March 1944 to set up the Broadway Jungle Airstrip, then melt away into the forest to harass the Japanese supply lines. Fortunately for him, and obviously for me as well, he was one of only 55 of the original 1,100 to make it back. Despite being a townie, he and the rest of them very quickly adapted to surviving off the land, which was something I would ultimately become interested in. He was also, by all accounts, comfortable in the jungle. Again, something I've tried when fishing both in South America and Southeast Asia. The earliest recollection I have of me trying fishing is a small black and white photograph I found at my dad's place when we were sorting it out after he'd died. It was taken on Brixham Harbour Wall, showing the both of us holding up some mackerel stood in the pouring rain. Someone had scribbled on the back of it 1952, so if that date's right, I'd be around the age of four. It was also around that time that my parents decided that we should leave Liverpool. This was a real jump from the frying pan into the fire, because we swapped the hustle and bustle of the city for a single row of terraced houses out in the wilds, literally miles from anywhere, at a place called Stormy Corner. Probably due to its isolated location as much as any post-war austerity, it was primitive there to say the least. The house was still on gas lights with pull chains and mantles, and outside, I'm afraid, it was the old non-style flushing toilet. But electricity must have been available at some point, because one of the neighbours had a tiny, valve-driven, flickering black-and-white TV. I remember all the kids, me included, queuing up at his door at five o'clock to watch Children's Hour. Otherwise, we spent our time roaming the fields which stretched in all directions, or playing in the nearby River Tord. Like most of the neighbours, we also kept chickens and had rabbits. A complete contrast to those first few years in Liverpool. A real country upbringing. The majority of the kids went to endowed school in old Skemmersdale village. I can still picture it now. 
We'd all gather up in the mornings to walk the couple of miles in each direction on our own, regardless of the weather. All except one family that went to a Catholic school. The church arranged a taxi for them to pick them up and drop them off. So yeah, it was primitive, but despite all that, a very enjoyable upbringing nonetheless. Back then, Skelmersdale wasn't an overspilled town from Merseyside, with thousands of featureless houses built around countless traffic islands. I guess this was also a time when finding work to support a wife and three kids would have been difficult for my dad, because he ended up taking a job at Leyland Motors, which he would travel to every day on an old motorbike and sidecar, which from memory was forever breaking down. I remember him taking us to a kids' Christmas party once in Leyland and breaking down in the snow somewhere out in the wilds on the way back in the pitch dark, absolutely miles from anywhere. Obviously, he'd no other option but to leave us and go off on foot to get help. Then, when I was about eight, we moved to a council house in Leyland so that he could be nearer to his work, and that, sadly, marked the end of our hillbilly lifestyle. Fortunately, council house building alone at the time was still only just about getting underway, so there were still open spaces nearby to roam around in. But it wasn't the same as living at Stormy Corner. Obviously, it was a very different era back then. Kids were expected to play out unattended and not be ferried around by worried parents, or be stuck inside behind some games console, completely devoid of social skills. All through my secondary school years, I was out and about camping, fishing and shooting, even bird nesting, which you wouldn't dream of encouraging people to do these days. But life was very much simpler back then, and refreshingly, far less PC. And while I wasn't exactly thick, because I regularly played truant and was just not interested in schoolwork, unsurprisingly, I managed to fail pretty much everything they ever put in front of me, which just goes to show that you have to want to learn as I would demonstrate later. But despite not liking school or wanting anything to do with it, I was somehow persuaded to do my Duke of Edinburgh's award. It was probably the fact that it put my fishing on more of a formal footing that sold it to me, though I suppose you don't consciously think that way at the age of 14. I was still mainly farm pond fishing at the time, though we would occasionally cycle 20 miles to St Michael's on wire to camp on the riverbank and fish overnight for flounders and eels. And by this time, my dad had a car, which meant we could have a summer holiday, which for many years meant camping in an old ex-army tent at Benelick Bay on Anglesey, which is where I got my first taste of small boat fishing. There was an old boy who had rowing boats in a small creek just below the site which he could rent by the hour, providing there were no white horses on the sea, which was his cut-off point. These were probably about ten feet in length, with nothing inside them except for an anchor and a pair of oars. I shudder now at the thoughts of some of the things we did back then. Health and safety was nowhere to be seen. I mean, imagine allowing young kids to hire a small rowing boat, then head out to sea with absolutely no idea whatsoever of what they were doing or where they were going. But we did, and we caught fish. Lots of fish, in fact, though probably nothing really of note. I honestly don't know what they were. Probably dabs and whiting with the odd gurnard or dogfish mixed in, and all caught on handlines bought down in the village. Fishing with the rods came much later, when I took along what tackle I had to fish from the rocks as well. Oh, and plenty of mackerel too, which as kids we'd take around the site trying to sell to pay for the next boat hire. We also tried hawking them on the nearby static caravan site, 
and when people wouldn't buy them, or if they gave us a hard time, we'd return after dark and throw the mackerel heads on the caravan roof so that the gulls would start banging about when they spotted them at daybreak, waking everybody up inside. It's not funny, really. If it was me, I'd have been as mad as hell. But thinking about it still makes me smile. Later, when I was about 16, we actually risked driving down to Cornwall for a holiday. That turned out to be a two-day journey with a camp stopover midpoint. But we had a fortnight at Whitsand Bay, which actually wasn't that far away from Lou. So I pestered my dad to take me on a shark fishing trip and caught a small blue of around £50. It was like as if I was a big game fisherman. I couldn't stop telling everyone about it and showing off the pictures. And though I still carried on with all the usual stuff when I got home, I think that actually that was where the sea fishing seed must have been sown. The next milestone, I suppose, was starting courting and being allowed to go on holiday with the then-girlfriend and in-laws-to-be. To guess where? Benlook Bay, of all places, on Anglesey again, only this time in one of the larger static caravans I'd terrorised with the mackerel heads ten years earlier. They tended to win for casual, relaxing holidays with plenty of reading, which I absolutely hated. So that gave me plenty of time to myself, and this time around, I had my own fishing tackle. On the downside, the old boy down at the creek was long gone, so no chance of getting into a boat. But I made sure I fished from the rocks every single day, which was sort of paving the way for married life a couple of years later, when my next door but one neighbour, who was a member of the Leyland and Farrington Boat Angling Club, suggested I tag along to one of their meetings, and from there, as the saying goes, I never looked back. That marked the start of my charter boat fishing era, and a particularly memorable start as it would all turn out. My first trip with the club was to nearby Morecambe, where one of the local shrimpers took parties out at weekends. From what I can remember, we didn't stray too far from the moorings as the weather wasn't too good. One thing I definitely do remember was catching loads of sea scorpions, something you rarely ever see off the Lancashire coast these days but my most vivid memory is that of coming back into the stone jetty in a small overloaded rowing boat and people laughing about getting wet as swells hitting the stern of the boat splashed inside. They weren't laughing though when one particularly good roller came right in over the back filling the entire boat. I can still picture it now. The boat sort of wobbling its way down through the water and none of us on board were in life jackets. People back then just didn't despite the fact that I can't swim. In fact, I still can't swim. For whatever reason, I never bothered to learn. Probably a throwback to my resistance to school lessons. Anyway, within a few seconds, thankfully, the boat settled out on the bottom at her own shoulder depth. What a relief. But it still wasn't over as we started to take a buffeting from the swell and also had the pull of the tide in the channel to contend with. I remember instinctively taking hold of the next person nearest to me, as did everyone else, and slowly, as a group, inching our way back to shore with the people on the prom looking on. This actually had quite a bad effect on me for some years to come, because through the club I started fishing quite regularly up at Loch Ryan with a local character from Kirkholm named Davy Agnew, who charted from a trail 16-foot open displacement boat, powered by twin four-horse seagull outboards. Davy, as it turned out, proved to be a fantastic mentor, and Lot Ryan certainly held some excellent fish. But still, it was quite a small boat, 
and with a wake and a following sea on his transom, would bring back bad memories of that day at Morecambe, which I was still struggling to get over. Davy Agnew actually deserves a bit more of a mention in his own right here, because as I've said, he eventually became my angling as well as my small boat handling mentor. So much so, that between trips organised by the club, I also went up there either on my own or with friends throughout the early 1980s. Davy himself was a bald-headed, weather-beaten Scot, who must have been nearing 70 when I first encountered him. Always when we arrived, his wife would usher us all into the kitchen where he'd be sat polishing off a big fry-up. Then it was out to the garage, where he'd reassemble the seagull carburettors which had been opened up and left in a bowl of petrol overnight. The engines would then go onto the back of the boat and we were away. If it was just a one-day flyer of a trip, he'd have boxes of fresh blow lug already dug. But if the trip was a two-dayer with a night over at the local farmhouse, we'd all have gone down to the old seaplane slip after the previous day's fishing to dig bait where everyone was expected to pull their weight until there was enough for the following day's trip. Most of the trips were fished pretty much straight out from where we launched at Lady Bay because the variety of fish there in that part of the lock was absolutely huge. In fact, my current boat partner, Dave Devine, once took a place there of £6, 9.5 ounces. Occasionally, some of the cod would even go over £20 and we'd get haddock there to maybe 6 and plenty of rays at times too. Three lock Ryan fish in particular stand out for me. One day, I took the Scottish Tub Gurnard record. A magnificent fish, but incredibly, one that was overshadowed by a turbot of almost £15 caught by Davy himself later that afternoon. Supposedly, having seen it all before, Davy was usually Mr Cool. But not on that day. As soon as the fish broke surface and he realised what it was, he set about wildly slashing at it with the gaff, breaking his own line in the process. Fortunately, having already fallen off the gaff once, it laid there on the surface stunned for just long enough for Davy to get in one last successful shot. I personally was happy enough with the Gurnard, which along with the Turbot, I took down to the sports shop in Stranraer for official weighing. The following year, again with Davy, I was back at the sports shop with a new British, Scottish and European spotted ray record. The boat that Davy had was a clinker-built Mackay Viking from Air. When I later fished over the Isle of Arran with Neil McLean, he had the same boat in fibreglass built by the same people, and both were excellent sea boats. I think that what impressed me most of all was its 6 foot 6 inch beam, which for a displacement hull gave it improved ride and sea keeping qualities, as I was to find out one January weekend while haddock fishing out of Lamlash. On the Saturday morning, we'd motored up the southern channel along the side of Holy Island in quite a bumpy sea. Around the other side of the island though, it was sheltered and absolutely flat calm, and we took quite a good bag of cod and haddock. For those that don't know, Besides being good eating, haddock are fantastic fighting fish. The problem is that they have very soft lips, which can easily tear from the hook if you pull too hard and don't use a landing net. We were catching them weighing between five and six pounds apiece. So as you'd expect, on the Sunday morning, we decided we'd go for more of the same. Again, up the side of Holy Island, it was bumpy in the channel. 
but what we hadn't appreciated was that overnight there'd been a slight shift in wind direction, which as we rounded the top corner, put us into a huge following sea. It was way too rough for a small boat with a four-horse seagull on the back to even contemplate turning round. So on a grim, wild January morning, we were forced to run the whole length of the exposed side of the island, fearing we were about to be gone as with each big following wave. When you've successfully managed to ride a few, you start to get thinking that perhaps you might just make it after all. But that's the longest mile that I've ever been forced to run in such a small boat. Like me, the other two lads were also extremely worried and were talking to me while I was on the tiller. Problem was, it sounded to me like someone somewhere else far away, almost like being in a dream. Eventually, when we did make it around the far corner into sheltered water, I just couldn't stop laughing. I didn't for one minute think it was funny. Now as I look back, I think I was probably suffering from shock. My face felt absolutely red hot and was burning up. I'm sure we were all relieved and probably just happy still to be alive. They say that the best lessons in life are the ones which cost you the dearest. I for one certainly won't be making that sort of mistake again. By this time I was working on the truck and bus assembly line at British Leyland in the notorious strike ridden hotbed known as the BX factory. It was there that I met up with fellow anglers Mick Moores and Keith Philbin, both from Preston, two of a trio of people who would greatly influence my small boat fishing future. Mickey Moores was already doing his own thing from a 16-foot pebble, while Keith was in the process of building a 16-foot displacement boat in his garage. In those days when he built a boat, you would quite literally start off with drums of resin, rolls of matting and a mould on short-term lawn. Obviously a great way of understanding how boats are put together, particularly when it comes to the assembly and kitting out, which I've done on a number of occasions with boats of increasing complexity over the years. In the winter, we'd all fish off Cleveland and Rossell. This was the start of the Filecourt's famous Jumbo Cod era. But in the summer, Mick used to camp every weekend at Bigger Village on Walney Island and put the boat in at Ernsey Bay to fish for place. By today's standards, it's hard to believe the quality of the place fishing during the 1970s and early 80s. Not only the numbers, but also some very good fish mixed in amongst them too. For example, after digging blowlog on the beach at low tide, then trailing over to Ernsey to launch and motor out to the mark, by the time high water arrived, on one day we boated over 530 flatties. Some obviously were going to be dabs, and probably there would have been an odd flounder mixed in amongst them too, but the majority were place, many of which ran between two and three pounds. It was absolutely incredible. And the winter cod fishing was even better still. A couple of years ago now, I recorded an interview on the Jumbo Cod era with Brian Douglas, who's the third big influence in that trio of people I mentioned earlier, so I won't be going through it all again in too much detail here. And by that stage, Keith had finished building his boat, right at the start of the ten-year-long run we had at the Jumbos, so fortunately, we missed out on none of it. And if my memory serves me well, a 21-pounder was the best fish in that learning season. The final cod run will feature again when I get into the main thrust of things and start to talk about the target in more detail, so what I don't want to do is give too much away here just yet. 
but what I will say is that there were some very big cod about, but not plenty of them across the wider size range. In fact, it wouldn't be unusual to see only a few bites over the entire day. The important thing was that every time the rod tip nodded, there was a genuine chance that it could be an absolute monster pulling on the bait. One year we had three over 30 pounds on my boat and on another occasion fishing out with Mick Murs we took 12 doubles to just short of 20 pounds in a single session. But they were the exceptions to the rule. More usually it was just a few big fish spread around a large number of boats though I have to say that Brian Douglas did catch more than his fair share of fish between 20 and 34 pounds. Slotted in around these cod and place fishing trips were charter boat trips with the Leyland and Farrington Boat Angling Club, plus private trips with some of its members to other venues where the club as an organisation didn't want to go. Lou in particular stands out here. We made many excellent trips to Cornwall, sleeping in the back of a van on the car park running alongside the river. But we weren't there for the sharks. Well, sometimes we were, but most of our efforts were spent targeting the reefs, particularly after Red Bream. They had some great mixed bottom fishing down there back then. But unfortunately, these trips didn't go down too well with the Leyland and Farrington Boat Angling Club Committee, who accused me of poaching its members, and eventually I was asked to leave. So we were forced to set up a new club of our own. But that didn't last too long either, due mainly to my growing obsession with the small boats. And this is where my earlier experiences with David Agnew and Neil McLean finally played their hand. By this stage, I'd managed to save up enough money to buy my own boat, though not, unfortunately, buy an engine. So I went into what would become a long-standing partnership with a chap called Steve Lill. I ordered a 16-foot fiberglass Mackay Viking, and Steve went out and bought a brand new Johnson 9.9. But, no electronics. There were none to speak of back then. You could get a small spot-the-ball Seafair Echo sounder, which was no more than a flashing light on a calibrated dial marking the depth. Everything else in navigation terms was done with a compass and a watch. But we had the fish. Things were starting to get a little bit more serious by this point. If you ask me to describe myself, or to pick out my main good and bad points, and you can make your own mind up on which of these is which, I would say that I'm obsessive, compulsive, at times driven far too organised and tidy, and always in need of firm objectives to aim for. I just can't seem to breeze along doing things either for their own sake or just for the enjoyment. For me, things need to fit into a bigger plan, which is not a particularly endearing quality, especially at times for the people who you live with. But eventually, both you and they adapt. So, having started to catch some very good fish, I felt a need to set myself some targets. At first, that would have been personal bests. In fact, I still have a list of PBs on my computer which I like to keep up to date. But I quickly found, as I was travelling further afield, and all the time recording species and weights, I also had a rapidly growing list of fish species names. And it was at that point that I decided to set myself the target of catching 100 species of fish in British waters. I remember once talking to Alan Yates, who is arguably Britain's top shore match angler, and he made the point that when you fish a competition, small species such as rockling or pout, which you might look down your nose at when pleasure fishing, suddenly have added value. And that's exactly how I felt with the 100 species target. 
It forced me to learn about and to fish for what's there, rather than just the popular species. And it also forced me into a far better understanding of what goes on beneath the surface, both in freshwater and at sea. I'm not going to talk about every individual inclusion on the target list. Common fish like dabs, pouting and dogfish will eventually come along during the normal course of events without really having to try for them. These form the skeleton of the project. It's fleshing out that skeleton where the effort and interest comes in, though particularly big fish from the bread and butter section of the list still stand out as well. One day we were black bream fishing out from Amberiswith and I brought up a small dragonette. That fish was the highlight of the day for me because it put another species name on my list. Later, when we place fish off the west side of Walney, we catch them regularly, including some of the males with the blue and yellow stripes. Absolutely beautiful fish, and it was the target that gave me that wider appreciation of all fish species. I'm trying to think back to individual catches that stand out. It's difficult in some ways because they were all special and important on the day. But one I do particularly remember is a catfish or wolfish out from Hartlepool. We were fishing aboard Tom Williams' boat famous in quite a rolling North Sea swell, mainly catching cod, haddock and whiting, when suddenly it was there at the surface. With its blunt head and stripe markings I knew immediately what it was. Next thing, Tom had it on the deck in the landing net. This was the first one I'd ever actually seen in the flesh and I just couldn't stop looking at its head and teeth. It wouldn't have mattered if I hadn't caught another fish all day after that. By this stage the Mackay Viking was long gone. I progressed through a CJR with a 35 horse Evinrude on the back as my first ever planing boat, which I didn't particularly like because it was so small and noisy, to a 15 foot Seahog Shorty with the same engine transferred across. That also meant switching from a full cathedral to a semi-cathedral hull, which made it a much better ride. But what it gained in design underneath, unfortunately, it lacked up top with extremely dangerous low gunnels. Solo, in fact, that we took to bolting marine ply boards to the inside of the gunnel to give it added security. Eventually, they took the hint and started turning out a new higher-sided version. But that's another story. My reason for mentioning this boat is that I persuaded Paul Harris of the Irish Tourist Board to send myself and Brian Douglas over with it to look at the small boat fishing prospects around Kerry, to which they said OK, so long as we fished out from Feenet. To cut a long story short, we were to shadow a local charter boat, which on the first day we did. But after catching just dogs and a few small pollock in quite a worrying Atlantic swell at the mouth of Tralee Bay, we decided that we couldn't do any worse by heading back inshore for a search of the more sheltered inside marks. I can't overemphasise how good a decision that turned out to be. To be honest, we had absolutely no idea of where to start, but we did by then have a paper sounder and had bought ourselves an Admiralty chart. So we started looking for all the usual features, systematically giving each of them a go in turn. The only drawback in shore was that mackerel for bait were in short supply, which ate up a lot of our time and eventually forced us into trying novel baits cut from other fish. Even so, we still caught plenty of topos and rays, including some small eyes and undulates. And we also hooked into some bigger fish too, in around 18 feet of water, which we could do absolutely nothing with 
Our thoughts were that these were monkfish that had dragged the line under a snag, so not knowing any different, we simply pulled for a break. As I say, it was ridiculously shallow. We could even see the lead and zip slider mid-water under the boat when pulling against a big fish, but we never unfortunately got to see what was on the end of the hook. That was until the last couple of days, when as part of the arrangement, Central Fisheries Board Officer, the late great Kevin Lanane, joined us to shoot a promotional video. Obviously, we told Kevin about the encounters. Then, by mid-morning on the first day, it happened again to Brian. With all his experience, Kevin knew instinctively what it was. That's a big skate, he said, and talked Brian through the fight, as neither of us had even seen a big skate before, let alone caught one, and never in our wildest dreams thought we'd hook one in just 18 feet of water. As it turned out, it wasn't a common skate. It was a rare bottlenose ray or white skate, which is just over 140 pounds, and with three of us already inside the little sea hog, was actually a pretty tight squeeze. But what a video! And after Kevin had gone, we decided to try and search out the famous monk hole. A bit of a depression no more than four feet deep, very close into the shore, much further inside the shelter of the bay itself. We soon found out why it was called the monk hole, catching several good monkfish to £55 on the first day. We also had a succession of small-eyed and thornback rays, plus several stingrays to around £20 too. So the target list was steadily growing all the time. I was equally pleased when I got my first turbot and brill fishing the Alderney Banks with Dougal Lane out from Guernsey. Dougal also found me a PB bass of £13 too, which is still unfortunately my only double figure bass to date. On another day, Dave Lewis and I got into some trigger fish from his Orkney longliner around a drying wreck inside Oxwich Bay in South Wales. He promised that if we fished peeler crab around the wreck edge we'd get some, and I have to say he was absolutely right. On another occasion, back down at Lou this time, we picked up a couple of comber on small baits out over the Eddiston Reef, and of course, there were also fresh water fish in the target mix too. Now I'm no coarse angler, so I had to rely on other people to put me right, but nonetheless I still finished up catching most of them. I did, however, become something of a specialist at catching post-glacial relic salmonids, such as whitefish and char, and even ended up guiding a number of other people, including Trevor Houseby, Peter Gallicol and Dave Lewis, to their first ever char. That was on Coniston, which, like Liverpool prior to 1984, was still in Lancashire, and I have to say again, should still be. We could quite literally catch them dozens that are sitting on bait before the season was moved forward to the 1st of May. From the bank over on the eastern side, we used a metal nut tie with cotton to a mono loop as a weak link weight, which was designed to part without losing the fish as we brought them up over the steep snaggy rock faces. But later on, we switched to the boat, picking them up lure trolling with drilled bullets on the line to get the lures down, and again had some excellent results. Some nice pike occasionally as well. I even managed to land a couple of char on a specially tied silver and red fly called the Char Lady, fish from a leg core shooting head out in the boat. More recently, unfortunately, Coniston char numbers have gone into serious freefall, though on the plus side, I'm told that their average size has gone up by around a third. Skelly was another freshwater fish I had a passion for. 
We used to get the odd one at certain spots on Ullswater, including the last but one British record caught by a friend of mine, Wally Wainwright. But we quickly learned that we could catch them almost to order by climbing Helvellyn to Red Tarn, sitting at the base of Striding Edge. That was until they were given special protection under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which makes those encounters, photographs and video footage even more important now historically. Then, one evening in October in the mid-1980s, fishing after dark with my friends Peter Fries and Joe Gomez from the rocks at Havilah Bay on Guernsey, I achieved a very special double. I'd long wanted to catch myself a red mullet, and on my first cast of a session, there was one dangling from the end of my line. The fish that was to complete my target challenge, my 100 species of fish in British waters. As you can probably imagine, I was elated, but at the same time, I was also a little bit sad as well. A strange sort of bittersweet moment. I'd finally achieved what I'd set out to do. But obviously, me being me, I was never going to be able to just leave things at that. In fact, if I'm honest, there was already a second target running in parallel with the first one I'd just completed, because with a growing number of foreign trips under my belt, a target figure of 300 species worldwide was already being worked to. Away from the fishing now, I was absolutely sick to the back teeth of all those tedious hours spent running cables down the chassis frames of trucks and buses to pay the bills. The factory I worked in is now closed, and to be honest, I'm not surprised. Without wanting to put too fine a point on it, let me say that if you didn't want to be bothered doing anything much all day, then it was very easy indeed to get away with it. To steal and slightly deface a famous comment from the late great Winston Churchill, never in the history of British industry did so many do so little for so long. Looking to get into some sort of fisheries work, I became a member of the Institute of Fisheries Management and successfully revised a full course of exams sat at the side of the assembly line. But by 1986, I simply couldn't take it any longer, so I asked them to make me redundant, which unsurprisingly, they were only too happy to do. I then drove over to Liverpool John Moores University. There I had a meeting with Dr, now Professor Pete Wheeler in the biology department to see if they'd take me on as a mature student. As I said earlier, I'd previously failed pretty much everything anyone had ever put in front of me at school. And I was honest about this in the meeting and the reasons for it, so a degree course was quite a big ask for both of us. Meanwhile, back at the factory, the other lads said I'd be too afraid to actually leave. Probably because that's how they felt. Who'd want to employ anybody who'd ever worked there? Then, when I handed my notice in... They switched from afraid to either incredibly stupid or incredibly brave. Stupid, maybe, but in all honesty, it would have taken a far greater act of bravery to have stayed put and slowly vegetated during the BX factory. So all credit then to Pete Wheeler. He said that if I was willing to work and give it a go, he was prepared to take a chance on me, knowing that with no job and a young family, I really had no other choice than to knuckle down. So I was duly enrolled as the first of the 1986 intake for BSc Biology in the March of that year, which for me was excellent timing, as it gave me the rest of the summer off up until October to do nothing other than fish. But what it also gave me was time to think and to plan, and it was during that time that I set myself a whole new target aim. 
The original 100 UK fish remained part of it, as did the 300 species worldwide, both of which have long since been achieved. But to those, I also added a double figure wild trout, one freshwater fish over £100, one fish in excess of £200 from my own trail bolt, one shore caught fish topping £200, one fish from anywhere topping £1,000, and one inclusion each in the British, European and World Record list. And after I got the first year of my degree course out of the way, which believe me, without any support or air levels, is not something you'd wish on anybody, suddenly feeling invincible, I also decided to add a fisheries-based PhD to the target list as well. What I'd like to say at this point is that as it stands here in spring 2013, in terms of achievement, it's still incomplete, and if I'm honest, will probably never be completed. That doesn't concern me. What I don't want is to have to start adding more elements to keep the thing going like I did when I caught my 100 species of fish. But it's close, painfully close. The 100 UK species list currently stands at 112, so that's that one ticked off. The global total is 313. Again, ticked off, though these days I've pretty much stopped counting. Catching a fish in excess of £200 from your own small boat, now that's potentially easy, but at the same time, also potentially quite difficult. A statement which, while it might sound contradictory, can actually make sense. This, realistically, is going to be another home waters project. You could theoretically trail your own boat abroad, but where is there within realistic trailing range that can offer bigger fish that we can trail to in Britain or the Irish Republic? So then you start looking at the likely candidates. Steve Mills, for example, took the thresher shark record of £323 from a trail boat, but threshers unfortunately still are, and always were, very rare fish. Graham Pullen has also hooked up some huge poor beagles from a dinghy. He and I once brought one of £170 on board, and believe me, that's about as big a lump with teeth as you'd ever want in such a confined space. And with the law as it stands, preventing poor beagles from being brought ashore he'd never be able to weigh the thing effectively anyway. So that rules that one out. Blue sharks of that size are also thin on the ground, and makos of any size are even rarer still. So the potential candidates list is shrinking by the minute, which is where the degree of difficulty I mentioned comes in. But as a counter to that, the one species left which could crack the double ton is probably the most angler-friendly big fish you could ever wish to encounter, that being the common skate. Double ton common skate are not over common, but nor are they mega rare. But most important of all, when you do get one inside a small boat, it isn't going to wreck the place. The one big problem, because of the shape, weight and sliminess, is getting them back out over the side again afterwards. But if you work a piece of tarpaulin or fishnet underneath them, which you can then lift from the corners, it usually isn't too bad. The day in question for my fish saw myself, Charlie Pitches and Dave Devine anchored up in our Warrior 165 in around 550 feet of water on a beautiful flat calm day in the Firth of Long, just as the tide was easing nicely away. Charlie hadn't caught a big skate before, so when my rod tip registered the first interest, I asked if he'd like to take it, which he did. A strange fish that one. It had absolutely no tail at all. From the weight estimation chart, 
which everybody up there uses for immediate catch and release. If my memory serves me well, it came out at something like £179. Dave was on next with an even bigger fish at 204 but unfortunately we somehow managed to break one of the gaff heads on that particular fish. So when my turn came around, because we had only the one gaff left, I decided to try to solo it. Getting it up and the gaff stuck into the leading edge of its wing was straightforward enough, but dragging it over the side on my own was completely another matter. In the end, I had to have a couple of attempts and even then felt like I was going to burst a blood vessel. Still, I made it in the end, with another fish coming out of the estimation formula at 204. Next big fish was getting a 200 pounder from the shore. Now this can be a much more difficult proposition, particularly if, like me, you're not a shore fisherman in the first place. But no matter. Again, if you do your homework and go to the right place at the right time, it isn't that far out of the question either. That right place turned out to be Namibia in February 1999, which as it's in the southern hemisphere was late summer. It's a weird place Namibia, a desert country with the Namib reputedly being one of the hottest places on earth, yet down on the shore and for around a half a mile inland it can at times feel freezing cold. This is where upwellings from the nutrient-rich Benguela current all the way from the Antarctic reach Africa's coast, hence the explosion in fish life. But what it can also do is cause a damp, misty haze over the beach which can shade out the sun chilling the air. We were based at Swakopmund, where when you drive out of town, you quite literally run out of road. After that, it very quickly turns into a desert track with high sand dunes fringing steep surf beaches. Again, I was with Dave Lewis and Namibian international shore angler Johan Berger. Johan, who was driving, would occasionally stop, take a long look at the water, then get back in and drive up the coast a little further for another look, until he was happy with us giving it a go. I later found out that what he was looking for was backwash water flow that would carry the scent and blood from dead fish staked out on the surf line out to sea to draw in the bronze whaler sharks. It is, quite honestly, an amazing place. Double, triple, even quadruple hookups were commonplace. On one occasion, I even counted seven people into sharks at the same time, all passing rods over and under each other as the fish took off in different directions. In total, we landed and released somewhere close to 90 sharks for a total weight of £15,000 over five days. That's a staggering £3,000 of fish a day, and from the beach. But it wasn't until the very last afternoon when I decided to use my own UK beach gear instead of the gear provided that I hooked my biggest fish, which as with the skate back home, was estimated from a length and girth table, coming out at £212. Providing you're prepared to travel, finding a tonne of fresh water fish should be less of a problem than many people might think though you do still need to think it through very carefully. It depends to some extent on your views as to whether it needs to be a wild fish or if it can be a stocky. If, for example, you decided to try for arapaima in the wild, you could be tramping the jungles of the Amazon for years and still never hit the target. Yet if you go over to Thailand instead and fish one of the many stock big fish lakes they have over there, you could potentially do it at the very first attempt. 
I've tried both, so I do have a bit of experience on that particular score. That said, my freshwater tun was a wild fish, though not from either the Amazon or Thailand. I booked a guided jet boat trip on the Fraser River in British Columbia, fishing for white sturgeon, where you can expect on average one fish in every six to break the tun. One day, my wife Dawn decided that she'd tag along and also have a go, so we headed first for a little backwater, which had previously held lots of small sturgeon up to around double figures. The idea was to get her one quickly, then head off looking for the bigger fish for me. So to speed things up, the first fish to come along to any rod was hers. You can probably guess the rest. That first fish, and suppose single figure specimen, came out of the weight estimation formula at a staggering 107 pounds. Fortunately for me, as I hadn't caught anything even approaching that size by that stage, later in the afternoon, I boarded and released a 155 pounder. And not long after I got home, I saw a piece of video on YouTube where another UK visitor had one of over a thousand pounds, a grander, which was something else I still needed to tick off my target list. But we're not at that stage of the story yet, as my next positive result, and one I was particularly pleased with, was catching a wild trout in double figures. From the days of chasing char and skelly in the deep glacial Cumbrian lakes, I've always been interested in how and why relic fish populations came to be there in the first place. Skelly and Vendace were supposedly forced to enter rivers surrounding the Irish Sea when melting ice several thousand years ago flooded the previously dry Irish Sea basin, which at the time contained a small brackish piece of water at its lowest point known as Loch Hibernia, where these fish supposedly lived. This is claimed forced them into the rivers, and later, as temperatures rose, isolated them only in the deeper lakes. Around the same time, Arctic char also ran many of the rivers in Scotland and Northern England, and again, as temperatures rose when the ice sheets retreated, they also became isolated in the deepest lakes, where though stunted, as I mentioned earlier, they can still be found today. The reason why I'm mentioning all of this is that hot on their heels was their main predator, the ferox trout. Fishery scientists disagree as to whether ferox are brown trout that feed exclusively on fish, allowing them to grow to maybe 40 pounds and more, or a subspecies of brown trout. Some even suggest they could be a different species altogether. But what they do know is that ferox live exclusively where small shoaling fish such as chari to be found, in deep, thermally stratified lakes. They also know that unlike brown trout, which feed heavily on invertebrates, live only for a few years and breed annually, ferox switch to fish feeding at a very early age, breed every two or three years, and can reputedly live to 20 years or more. For me, there's something mystical about the ferox trout. So when I got an invite from Malcolm Greenhouse to accompany him to Pitt Lockery and stay with ferox 85 co-founder Ron Greer, as you might expect, I absolutely jumped at the chance. As a point of reference here, the ferox group once strung together a dozen consecutive blanks, so even seeing, let alone catching one, was going to be no easy task. The weather wasn't very kind to us either. A howling, freezing early spring weekend sat in a boat on Loch Rannoch in the Scottish Highlands. Myself, Malcolm and Ron were in one boat, with the group's other co-founder and future ferox record holder Alistair Thorne along with a couple of the other group members, fishing alongside us in another. 
and slowly we worked up and down the lock, trolling our dead baits weighted to work in around 35 feet of water. As I say, even seeing one would have been a triumph. Yet by lunchtime, I'd bolted a 15.5 pounder, Malk had a 12.5 pounder, and Ron had dropped off a smaller fish of around 6 pounds. So let's now look at cracking a 1,000 pound barrier. Catching a grander is probably the biggest single objective any angler could ever set for him or herself. With both marlin and tuna of any size these days, never mind in the monster category, in severe decline, and big sharks under enormous commercial pressure everywhere, where do you start? Great whites are out of the equation, as they are now protected, and rightly so. But there is one shark species which seemingly comes under no pressure at all, for reasons I'll explain as we go along, has the potential to reach £1,000 and more, and can even be found close to home off the west coast of Ireland, this being the six-gill shark. This is a huge, primitive, almost dogfish-like species which lives at great depth along the edge of the continental slope, where it cleans up dead animals falling down from above. Several years ago now, Graham Pullen got word of a French chap with a boat on the tiny island of El Hero, right at the outer fringe of the Canary Islands, who specialised in catching big six-gills. This chap's name was Miguel Gamito, and he was based at the tiny southern harbour of La Restinga. So we booked ourselves on a flight out to Tenerife, where the following morning we boarded the ferry for the four-hour journey across. Graham was just finishing off his stint as we arrived, and he'd had fish to £1,500. But unfortunately, Dave Devine and I would not be quite so lucky. Fishing from a permanently anchored buoy in around 1,700 feet of water, with whole bonito baits on the bottom, we were tended to pick up fish at the smaller end of the range between two and three hundred pounds. And by the last day, our luck still hadn't changed and was about to get a whole lot worse. That morning, a whole series of disasters came along rapid fire. Things like dropped baits, pulled hooks, straightened hooks, and worst of all, a parted line with a big fish on the end as the braid touched the sharp head of a screw sticking out from the diving platform on the stern. Meanwhile, I'd been catching all sorts of weird and wonderful things such as berries from the bottom, and even that was hard work. So at lunchtime we had a chat with Miguel about maybe moving to another anchored buoy closer into shore to fish for stingrays. Thankfully, he persuaded us to give it one last go, and later that afternoon we each had fish topside of 400 kilos, which is somewhere just in excess of 900 pounds. Sadly, not the magical grander, but still, the biggest fish that either of us had ever caught. Miguel unfortunately left El Hero shortly after our visit to relocate at Cape Verde and concentrate on the marlin. But it is still possible to catch six gills elsewhere in the world, with Ascension Island supposedly being at the top of the list, though let's not forget Islands carrying a halt inside the Shannon Estuary. So the target looks like it will ultimately defeat me, though I have to say I gave it my best shot. But we're still not finished yet. Let's not forget the record fish. That spotted ray I mentioned earlier with Davy Agnew from Loch Ryan took care of the Scottish, British and European records very nicely all in one hit. I also had the thin-lit mullet record, though I didn't claim it, 
as my son Ian had one bigger later the same day, which he did successfully claim. On another occasion, while I was fishing with Ian Burrows under the cliffs of the Muller Galloway, I caught a Ballinrass of £5.10, ounces, which was well over the then Scottish record. Ian operates a policy on his boat of everything, records included going back. If you don't like it, he tells people straight, don't book. I'd already seen him put several Flycourt World Pollock records back early that day, so I already knew what the script would be with this fish. But we did manage to weigh and photograph it in the boat. Then we put it back, still on the hook, to get the whole thing on video, including the release. And guess what? It got away. Not that it mattered. As I've explained, I had no intention of making a claim anyway. Actually, it was those world record pollock taken on fly by Alan Hetherington of Audience Boat that persuaded me to give fly fishing at sea another go myself. Previously, I'd only ever caught small bass and mackerel on the fly, but I took along some fly tackle to Northern Ireland for a trip aboard Hamish Curry's 30-foot rib predator out from Cushion Doll, where we spent a couple of hours drifting close to some salmon cages out in the bay. By all accounts, pellets dropping through the mesh at feeding time would gather up huge shoals of coal fish, some of which went well into double figures. So we tried using the pellets to draw the fish up, but soon found that the ball was drifting away from the feeding ball too quickly in the tide. On top of that, IGFA rules state that loose feeding is not allowed where world records are concerned. So in the end we just drifted the entire cage edge, where it was virtually a fisher throw anyway. Some of the fish quite literally smashed my 4kg tippet like cotton. But I did manage to hold on to a few of the smaller fish, and in the end was successfully able to make a 4kg tippet claim with a fish of £4.4. 4 that just leaves my PhD. What I did there was persuade my employers at the Environment Agency to fund me through seven years of research, which they agreed to do, providing there were potential benefits in it for them. My background is evolutionary science, whereas the Environment Agency is more concerned with aquatic and environmental projects. I actually started work for them at a hatchery experimenting in the mass breeding of coarse fish species, supposedly as a quick fix for restocking rivers after major pollution incidents. Later, I moved to the water quality side of things, where I was involved in the clean-up of the River Mersey and preparing prosecution cases for court. That court work actually nudged me towards becoming a magistrate, but again, that's another story. So the EA agreed to fund my research, in which I needed to have an evolutionary element and they needed an environmental outcome, which was eventually satisfied through a phenomenon known as fluctuating asymmetry. Briefly, environmental stress can be a driver for evolutionary change, but not always. I was curious to see if small-scale physical changes brought about by pollution stress were heritable, which, as it turns out, they're not. On the other side of the coin, loss of symmetry between traits on the left and right hand side of the body brought about by pollution stress were found to mirror the levels of pollution triggering them. In a nutshell, if you brought me a sample of sticklebacks, which for several important reasons were my study species, I should be able to tell you the water quality issues affecting their lives without chemically sampling the water. 
in addition to that, I should also be able to pick up on chronic pollution issues up to three years old that had since been rectified and therefore again could not be chemically sampled. Anyone interested in the project can read the full thesis, either from the internet or from Liverpool University Library. So that more or less sums up the actual target project itself. In addition to the fish I've already mentioned as vital components of what I was trying to achieve, just to wind things up, I would also like to briefly mention a few other fish which for various reasons stick in my mind. It's a bit of a ragbag bunch, but all good fish nonetheless. I mentioned earlier the red mullet from the rocks at Guernsey, which for me was particularly special, because while it was my 100th fish, I also very much wanted to catch one anyway. Skelly and ferox trout were two other species I felt pretty pleased with myself for catching. And continuing on with the special catches theme was catching a pyara in the Amazon. If you don't know what a pyara is, and most people won't, then you must take a look at pictures of one on the internet to appreciate its full visual impact. It's a silver, almost salmon-shaped fish with huge eyes and two bottom jaw fangs potentially up to a couple of inches in height, which fit into holes in the top of its skull when its mouth is closed. In South America, they also call them devilfish. You find them on the edge of fast water, where they tend to hang around picking off prey fish washing through out of control. Several have been taken during my visit, but right up until the last morning, all of them had somehow managed to avoid my lures. This actually was the main objective behind the visit, so catching a 17 pounder an hour or so before we were due to pack up, followed by an 80 mile boat trip back to Porto Maldonado, I can tell you it was both a highlight and a relief. Still in Central and South America, the rooster fish was another spectacular species on the target list. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look one up on the internet. Besides being great fighters, they're also absolutely amazing looking fish. You catch them mainly from boats close up to where the huge rollers start breaking on the steeper beaches over on the Pacific side, so it can be real heart in the mouth stuff, judging the boat's position in relation to the breaking crests. Mine was only a very small fish, but again, a catch I will always treasure. Skipping back to the Amazon for just a moment, that's also where I caught two of my weirdest fish. Despite the fact that we were nearly 4,000 miles from the sea, we were still catching stingrays. But I have to say that an electric eel without doubt takes the oddball prize. These are air-breathing fish capable of belting out huge blasts of electricity. Reputedly, enough to kill a man. Yet despite that, though not particularly thinking about electric eels, we were stood in the water on a gravel bar casting our baits into an adjacent deep pool. When it first started coming in with its long greenish-yellow body snaking across the surface, the local Indian guide legged it, thinking it was an anaconda but I suppose in many ways it was potentially even worse than that. Fortunately, it must have discharged itself out in the deeper water when it first realised it was in trouble, otherwise I might not have been telling this part of the story here now. As for the fish with the hardest fighting abilities, at sea it has to be the tuners and jacks. Even the small ones fight deep and hard, 
absolutely every millimetre to the boat. There is actually a freshwater fish which puts up exactly the same style and level of fight. Fishing from a wooden platform on legs over quite deep water on Bung Samran Lake in the centre of Bangkok is where I was given my introduction to this particular fish. We were float fishing grapefruit sized balls of paste made from rice husk flour and almost instantly hooking up into giant Mekong catfish. Most people think of cats as being bottom loving predators but not this particular species. These feed mainly in the upper layers of the water and are strict vegetarians. Thailand actually would be another potential location for cracking the freshwater tongue with either the Mekong cat or the Arapaima. But having struggled with 16 of the things to maybe 60 pounds quite literally one after the other, I'm not sure that the Mekong cat is the species I would choose. I was absolutely knackered. One final thing I suppose I should mention too is the angling journalistic side of things, particularly as it both directly as well as indirectly led to many of the catches I've previously described. Ever since the early 1970s, I've always had at least one magazine I could call home. When I think back, at some stage or other, I've probably even worked for all of them. Unfortunately, many are now long since gone. On the sea angling scene, those still with us include Boat Fishing Monthly, Sea Angler and Improve Your Sea Fishing. But I've also done stuff in many of the other sister mags too, such as Trout and Salmon, and probably also Trout Fisherman though I'm not 100% sure on that last one. The articles themselves probably run into many, many hundreds, possibly even thousands. I was responsible, for example, for the first ever UK fishing article fully illustrated with digital pictures, and later on, just to show it could be done, I illustrated another using a mobile phone camera, which were not as good back then as they are today. There have also been books as well, but I knocked all of that lot on the head when I retired in 2012, preferring to concentrate on my website, Fishing Films and Facts, which hosts articles, videos and audio podcasts. And if I'm honest, it's the audio angling podcasts now that are my main interest. What I'd like to do is to interview as many people as I can who've made actual contributions to both angling and its history. Unfortunately, all too often, people who belong in that category grow old and slip off the radar, with the opportunity of having them tell their own story lost forever. So in that sense, the audio angling archive of the site is grabbing some of that history before it gets lost, and in that respect I've already had quite a bit of success. I managed to interview Clive Gammon, for example, just before he passed away. Also, the late Bill Pashby, who was on the oars of a small rowing boat dropped from a mothership out from Scarborough, fishing for giant tunny back in the 1940s and 50s. Equally important, and still with us at the last roll call, was John Rawl, who invented uptide fishing, and also John McAngus, who was part of the team responsible for stocking Xander into the fence in 1963. Besides going onto my website, these interviews also go to Angling Heritage, and to the National Sound Archive in London, where the collection number is C1486. So that, along with fishing from our Warrior 175, and representing recreational fishing on the North West Inshore's Fisheries Conservation Authority, is what I'm mainly up to at the moment. 
still involved in angling as much as I ever was, and unfortunately, still one fish short of making the whole target project a complete clean sweep. <laughs> <laughs>